Hi, this is Hale Shepard, an international tax and tax dispute attorney with a passion for writing. You're listening to Prose by Tax Prose, another article by Hale Shepard. I published a series of articles offering insight about complicated tax issues while still making them interesting and understandable. Please continue listening for one of my articles, previously published in a major journal and read by a professional. It's important to note that I am a tax attorney, but I'm not your tax attorney. The information in the article does not constitute advice or guidance of any type to anyone. It's being provided for general, informational purposes only. Depriving partnerships of access to the Independent Office of Appeals. Old and new IRS challenges to conservation easements. By Hale E. Shepard. Published in Taxes, the Tax Magazine, July 2021. Read for you by Kristen Dummer. Hale E. Shepard examines various enforcement tools used by the IRS in the conservation easement context, which might negatively affect all taxpayers. 1. Introduction Congress has supported Code Section 170H, which allows for conservation easement donations and related tax deductions for decades. In upholding and expanding the benefits of this tax provision over time, Congress has been fully aware of the recurrent complaints by the U.S. Internal Revenue Service, or IRS, about perceived abuses, particularly in terms of valuation. Despite this repeated backing by Congress, the IRS insists on attacking certain partnerships that donate easements of real property to charitable organizations. Some of its methods are overt, others obscure, but all are subject to some degree of criticism and controversy. This article analyzes various tactics that the IRS uses to challenge so-called syndicated conservation easement transactions, or SCETs, and substantially similar transactions, or SSTs, focusing on the most recent, depriving partnerships of their general right to seek review by the Independent Office of Appeals before being forced into long, expensive, complicated tax litigation. 2. Overview of Conservation Easement Donations and Deductions Taxpayers who own undeveloped real property have several choices. For instance, they might, one, hold the property for investment purposes, selling it when it appreciates sufficiently, two, determine how to maximize profitability from the property and do that, regardless of the negative effects on the local environment, community, or economy, or three, voluntarily restrict certain future uses of the property such that it is protected forever for the benefit of society. The third option, known as donating a conservation easement, not only achieves the goal of environmental protection, but also triggers another benefit, tax deductions for donors. As one would expect, taxpayers cannot donate an easement on any old property and claim a tax deduction. They must demonstrate that the property was worth protecting. A donation has an acceptable conservation purpose if it meets at least one of the following requirements. 1. It preserves land for outdoor recreation by or the education of the general public. 2. It preserves a relatively natural habitat of fish, wildlife, or plants, or a similar ecosystem. 3. It preserves open space, including farmland and forest land, for the scenic enjoyment of the general public and will yield a significant public benefit. 4. It preserves open space, including farmland and forest land, pursuant to a federal, state, or local governmental conservation policy and will yield a significant public benefit. Or 5. It preserves a historically important land area or certified historic structure. Taxpayers memorialize the donation to charity by filing a public deed of conservation easement, 
Deed. In preparing the deed, taxpayers often coordinate with the land trust to identify certain limited activities that can continue on the property after the donation without interfering with the deed, without prejudicing the conservation purposes, and without jeopardizing the tax deduction. These activities are called reserved rights. The IRS openly recognizes in its Conservation Easement Audit Techniques Guide, or ATG, that reserved rights are ubiquitous. The IRS will not allow the tax deduction stemming from a conservation easement unless the taxpayer provides the land trust before making the donation documentation sufficient to establish the condition of the property at the time of the gift. This is called the baseline report. It may feature several things, including but not limited to 1. The survey maps from the U.S. Geological Survey, showing the property line and other contiguous or nearby protected areas. 2. A map of the area drawn to scale, showing all existing man-made improvements or incursions, vegetation, flora, and fauna, for example, locations of rare species, animal breeding and roosting areas, and migration routes, land use history, and distinct natural features. 3. An aerial photograph of the property and an appropriate scale, taken as close as possible to the date of the donation. And 4. On-site photographs taken at various locations on the property. The value of the conservation easement is the fair market value, or FMV, of the property at the time of the donation. The term FMV ordinarily means the price on which a willing buyer and willing seller would agree, with neither party being obligated to participate in the transaction, and with both parties having reasonable knowledge of the relevant facts. The IRS explains in its ATG that the best evidence of the FMV of an easement would be the sale price of other easements that are comparable in size, location, usage, etc. The ATG recognizes, though, that it is difficult, if not impossible, to find comparable sales of properties encumbered by easements. Consequently, appraisers must often use the before and after method instead. This means that an appraiser must determine the highest and best use, or HBU, of the property and the corresponding FMV twice. First, the appraiser calculates the FMV if the property were put to its HBU, which generates the before value. Second, the appraiser identifies the FMV taking into account the restrictions on the property imposed by the easement, which creates the after value. The difference between the before value and the after value, with certain other adjustments, produces the value of the easement donation. A property's HBU is the most profitable use for which it is adaptable and needed in the reasonably near future. The term HBU also means the use of property that is physically possible, legally permissible, financially feasible, and maximally productive. Importantly, valuation in the easement context does not depend on whether the owner has actually put the property to its HBU in the past. The HBU can be any realistic potential use of the property. Common HBUs are construction of a residential community, creation of a mixed-use development, or mining. Properly claiming the tax deduction stemming from an easement donation is surprisingly complicated. It involves a significant amount of actions and documents. The main ones are as follows. The taxpayer must 1. Obtain a qualified appraisal from a qualified appraiser. 2. Demonstrate that the land trust is a qualified organization. 3. Obtain a baseline report adequately describing the condition of the property at the time of the donation and the reasons why it is worthy of protection. 4. Complete a Form 8283, non-cash charitable contributions, and have it executed by all relevant parties, including the taxpayer, appraiser, and land trust. 5. Assuming the taxpayer is a partnership, 
file a timely Form 1065, enclosing Form 8283 and the qualified appraisal. 6. Receive from the land trust a contemporaneous written acknowledgement, both for the easement itself and for any endowment or stewardship fee donated to finance perpetual protection of the property. And 7. Send all the partners their schedules K-1, partner's share of income, deductions, credits, etc., and a copy of Form 8283. 3. Existing Government Enforcement Actions Congress has endorsed conservation easements for many years. Indeed, a recent congressional report acknowledges that the conservation easement tax incentive under Section 170H has enjoyed broad bipartisan support. Notwithstanding this widespread backing by the legislative branch, the IRS, along with the Department of Justice, or DOJ, persist in attacking partnerships involved in what they consider SCETs or SSTs. The enforcement methods that the IRS and DOJ employ in this area far exceed those utilized in normal situations, yet most people are unaware of them or fail to appreciate their extent. Below is a partial list. A. Labeling Donations, Listed Transactions The IRS issued Notice 2017-10 labeling SCETs and SSTs as listed transactions. This triggered the need for various parties to file Forms 8886, Reportable Transaction Disclosure Statement, and Forms 8918, Material Advisor Disclosure Statement, providing the IRS lots of details and threats that it could utilize in its enforcement activities. B. Implementation of Compliance Campaign The IRS launched a compliance campaign devoting dozens of specialized revenue agents and other IRS personnel to the cause. The stated goal of the IRS is to audit every SCET and SST, presumably until it exhausts the funding and or human resources, or Congress enacts some type of legislative fix based on the debated position that something is broken. C. Predetermined conclusions during audits. The IRS implemented a practice of issuing audit reports and notices of Final Partnership Administrative Adjustment, or FPAS, claiming that all partnerships that engaged in an SCET or SST should get a charitable deduction of $0 and should be severely penalized, regardless of the amount of pre-donation due diligence performed by the partnerships, strength of the conservation values, existence of multiple independent appraisers, attainment of all necessary permits and authorizations for the potential land usage, etc. Particularly galling to taxpayers is the fact that in issuing the FPAWS triggering many years of litigation, the IRS refuses to specify the factual, legal, or procedural reasons for its attacks. Below is the language from an FPAW in a recent tax court case, which is representative of the stance that the IRS is taking in essentially all easement cases. It has not been established that all the requirements of IRC Section 170 have been satisfied for the non-cash charitable contribution of a qualified conservation contribution. Accordingly, the charitable contribution deduction is decreased by the entire amount claimed by the partnership on its Form 1065. Alternatively, if it is determined that all requirements of IRC Section 170 have been satisfied for all or any portion of the claimed non-cash charitable contribution, it has not been established that the value of the contributed property interest was greater than zero for the relevant year. Accordingly, the charitable contribution is decreased by the entire amount claimed by the partnership on its Form 1065. In addition to fully disallowing the easement-related deduction based on a combination of alleged technical and valuation issues, 
the IRS ordinarily proposes in the FPA several alternative penalties ranging in severity. These include negligence, substantial understatement of income tax, substantial valuation misstatement, gross valuation misstatement, or reportable transaction understatement penalty. This is consistent with the ATG, which explains that an FPA will generally include a tiering of proposed penalties with multiple alternative positions. D. Attempts to enjoin activities. The DOJ filed a complaint in district court seeking a permanent injunction against alleged organizers and appraisers, along with disgorgement of the proceeds obtained from their dealings with SCETs or SSTs. E. Name-calling. The IRS featured SCETs and SSTs on its dirty dozen list for several years. These transactions were absent from the list for 2020, though. F. Congressional Inquiry. The Senate Finance Committee conducted an inquiry and issued a report in August 2020 suggesting that the SCETs and SSTs that it reviewed constituted abusive tax shelters, understood as such by both organizers and partners. However, the report did not offer any specific recommendations about how to address perceived problems, and it underscored that the Code Section 170H deduction should remain. In this regard, the report explains that the Senate Finance Committee believes that Congress, the IRS, and Treasury Department should take further action to preserve the integrity of the conservation easement tax deduction. G. Warnings, Threats, and Rhetoric The IRS has engaged in a media blitz, disseminating a significant amount of threats and warnings recently via new releases, tax conference presentations, and articles. The IRS emphasizes that it is, one, pursuing promoters, appraisers, return preparers, material advisors, accommodating entities, charitable organizations, and others. Two, making referrals to the Office of Professional Responsibility, or OPR. Three, raising a long list of technical, procedural, legal, and tax arguments and disputes, while constantly trying to develop more. Four, asserting all possible civil penalties. Five, conducting simultaneous civil examinations and criminal investigations. Six, contracting with a significant number of appraisers from the private sector to handle the workload. And seven, litigating a large number of cases in tax court. H. Pursuing Supposed Promoters The IRS appointed a new promoter investigations coordinator who is in charge of coordinating with the Civil Division, Criminal Investigation Division, Chief Counsel, and OPR to develop and implement promoter enforcement on both an individual and strategic level. The IRS can assert severe promoter penalties against people falling into various categories, namely any person who won, organizes, or assists in the organization of a partnership or other entity, an investment plan or arrangement or any other plan or arrangement. Two, participates directly or indirectly in the sale of ownership interests in any such entity, plan, or arrangement. Three, makes or furnishes or causes another to make or furnish in connection with the organization or sale of an entity, plan, or arrangement, a statement regarding the allowability of any deduction or credit, the excludability of any income, or the attainment of any other tax benefit by a taxpayer and actually knows or has reason to know that such statement is materially false or fraudulent, and or for, makes or furnishes or causes another to make or furnish a gross valuation overstatement as to any material matter. 
The IRS, perhaps at the behest of the new Promoter Investigations Coordinator, has recently initiated various promoter investigations of alleged organizers of SCETs or SSTs. I. Searching for Fraud In March 2020, the IRS announced that it had formed the new Fraud Enforcement Office, whose leader will be working closely with the new Promoter Investigations Coordinator described in the preceding paragraph. No recent tax court decisions involving SCETs feature claims by the IRS that the partnership committed fraud. This makes sense because proving fraud would be difficult for the IRS to do, particularly when a partnership, one, engaged in considerable due diligence before making an easement donation, such as reliance on title reports, marketing studies, baseline reports, multiple valuations by independent appraisers, cost estimates, tax or legal opinions by attorneys, returns prepared by informed accountants, and more. Two, claimed the easement deduction pursuant to Code Section 170H, as enacted and expanded over the years by Congress. Three, disclosed the donation to the IRS by filing Form 1065, Form 8283, Form 8886, Form 8918, and a qualified appraisal. Four, maintained all relevant tax, financial, and legal records, and five, fully cooperated with the IRS audit. While the IRS has not raised fraud in tax court battles, its counterpart, the DOJ, made numerous allegations of fraudulent activity in its complaint seeking a permanent injunction of easement-related activities by certain individuals and entities. For instance, the DOJ claimed, without yet providing any proof, that the defendants knew or had reason to know that the statements they made or furnished, and the statements they caused others to make or furnish, regarding the allowance of the deductions from the conservation easement syndicates or the securing of other tax benefits by reason of purchasing interests in the conservation easement syndicates, were false or fraudulent as to a material matter. J. Mandating More Disclosure The IRS introduced a new Form 8886 in early 2020. It adds three new subparts to Line 7, all of which obligate a taxpayer to reveal yet more details about the tax benefits from participation in a reportable transaction, like an SCET or SST. The new expanded Form 8886, unnoticed by most taxpayers and their advisors, should trigger some degree of concern. According to a recent IRS update to Congress, 9% of Forms 8886 for 2017 and 3% for 2018 were incomplete, and the IRS warned that further analysis and or examination is being performed to determine if penalties for incompleteness or inaccuracy are appropriate. New Lines 7B, 7C, and 7D on Form 8886 represent yet more chances for participants to get tripped up. The IRS has frequently maintained, and the tax court has sometimes agreed, that relatively small problems with Form 8283, such as omitting one piece of information, providing required data only in an attachment, miscalculating the basis, or erroneously misstating the manner in which property was obtained, alone warrants a total disallowance of the tax deduction related to the conservation easement. Given that the IRS has applied this line of argument to Forms 8283, it might do the same with Forms 8886. K. Swifter Summonses The IRS issued a legal memo in February 2020 containing the important changes to the audit process involving listed transactions, such as SCETs and SSTs. The General Information Document Request, IDR Enforcement Process, with three graduated steps, can be summarized as follows. 
A revenue agent issues an IDR to the taxpayer under audit, and if the taxpayer does not adequately respond by the deadline, then the revenue agent has certain tools to encourage compliance. Specifically, revenue agents first issue a delinquency notice followed by a pre-summons letter and ultimately a summons. This multi-layer process is mandatory and has no exceptions. The IRS is now streamlining matters in the context of SCETs and SSTs by eliminating the graduated three-step process. Thanks to the recent IRS legal memo, the previous mandatory process is no longer required. Revenue agents in the large business and international division will follow the normal swifter summons procedures followed by other IRS personnel going forward. L. Neglecting the facts. The IRS has eradicated the Acknowledgement of Facts IDR process. Revenue agents in the large business and international division have traditionally issued taxpayers an Acknowledgement of Facts IDR at the end of the audit process. The purpose was to ensure that both the taxpayers and the IRS agreed on the key facts such that the dispute before the appeals office and or tax court could focus solely on the legal or tax issues. The IRS has underscored the benefits of the Acknowledgement of Facts IDR for years, suggesting that it facilitates the resolution of issues during the audit phase, saves resources on both sides, avoids appeals officers referring cases back to revenue agents for further development, and allows the IRS to prepare the most comprehensive audits reports and FPAWs possible. These positive attributes notwithstanding, the IRS changed its tune in February 2020 when it issued a legal memo dictating that revenue agents who audit listed transactions like SCETs and SSTs are not required from this point forward to send taxpayers Acknowledgement of Facts IDRs. One might interpret this as disinterest by the IRS in getting the facts straight before pushing cases toward litigation. M. Revoking Procedural Protections for Appraisers The IRS has revoked procedural protections for appraisers, including those involved with valuing SCETs and SSTs. The Internal Revenue Manual, or IRM, has historically contained a multi-level review process designed to ensure that an appraiser had engaged in a certain degree of wrongdoing before assessing penalties, making referrals to OPR, etc. The prior procedures required analysis and agreement by at least five experienced IRS employees, that is, the revenue agent, examining appraiser, primary review appraiser, secondary review appraiser, and review manager, before Code Section 6695A penalties could be assessed. However, the IRS issued a memo in January 2020 called Interim Guidance on IRC 6695A Penalty Case Reviews, or Interim Guidance whose purpose was remarkably clear, eliminating the multi-tier review process for IRC 6695A appraiser penalty cases. Under the interim guidance, if an examining appraiser determines a gross valuation misstatement while, say, auditing an SCET, he simply needs to obtain written approval from his immediate supervisor, with an email sufficing, and then notify the revenue agent that the Code Section 6695A penalty might apply. Moreover, The interim guidance says that while the decision to open a Code Section 6695A penalty case normally is based on the recommendations of an examining appraiser, revenue agents should open a case whenever they alone determine penalty consideration is warranted. Finally, the interim guidance states that revenue agents are solely responsible for assessing the Code Section 6695A penalty based on information obtained during the examination, preparing the related report, and closing the penalty case. 
In summary, the prior procedures required concurrence by at least five experienced IRS employees before seeking Code Section 6695A penalties, whereas the interim guidance contemplates that a revenue agent, who likely has no training or education whatsoever in the field of valuation, make this decision alone or with input from just one examining appraiser. N. Polemical Settlement Initiative Leveraging the momentum from its recent tax court victories based on inadvertent flaws in deeds, baseline reports, Forms 8283, and or appraisals, the IRS issued a news release in June 2020 describing a potential path to resolution, settlement initiative. It then started sending offer letters to eligible partnerships. Opinions vary on the settlement initiative, of course, with many interpreting it as a big stick as opposed to an olive branch from the IRS. Those characterizing the settlement initiative as just another IRS enforcement tactic point to several things, including the fact that participation does not serve to limit or prohibit the IRS from later asserting criminal penalties, promoter penalties, appraiser penalties, return preparer penalties, or any other sanction. This is noteworthy because when taxpayers normally execute a Form 906 closing agreement with the IRS, all matters covered thereby are considered final and conclusive unless there is a subsequent showing of fraud, malfeasance, or material misrepresentation by the taxpayer. Skeptics also underscore the differential treatment contemplated by the settlement initiative. So-called Category 1 partners did one or more of the following in connection with an SEET or SST organized, sold, or promoted it, prepared an appraisal, provided legal or tax advice, supplied return preparation services, or took actions making them material advisors. They get hit with a charitable deduction of $0 and a 40% penalty, plus they must pay the entire amount right away. Thus, if Category 1 partners participate in the settlement initiative, they are assuring themselves of the worst possible outcome, consistent with most FPAWs. By contrast, Category 2 partners can claim an ordinary tax deduction equal to the out-of-pocket costs paid to participate in the SCET or SST, which includes cash and other property contributed in exchange for partnership interests. Moreover, their penalties are not 40% of the tax underpayment, but rather 10% to 20%, depending on their return on investment ratio. This large disparity might put Category 1 partners at odds with Category 2 partners, triggering anger, distrust, infighting, legal actions, etc. A cynic might speculate that this is exactly what the IRS intended, a classic divide-and-conquer strategy. This theory finds support in gratuitous, inflammatory statements by the IRS, like the following. Taxpayers should note that the U.S. tax court has held in the government's favor in several opinions and orders in syndicated conservation easement cases. The IRS realizes that some promoters may tell their clients that their transaction is better than or different from the transactions previously rejected by the tax court and that it may be better for the client to litigate than accept this resolution. When deciding whether to accept the offer, the IRS encourages taxpayers to consult with independent counsel meaning a qualified advisor who was not involved in promoting the transaction or handpicked by a promoter to defend it. The IRS is aware that some promoters of these abusive transactions have downplayed the significance of the string of recent court decisions holding in the government's favor, arguing that their cases are somehow different or that those decisions might be reversed on appeal. These promoters ignore common sense and argue that the real dispute is about value, neglecting to explain how the reporting of short-term appreciation, often exceeding many multiples of reality, could possibly survive judicial scrutiny. 
O. Efforts to undermine privilege. The IRS has become more aggressive in its efforts to gather all potentially relevant data, including pre-donation communications involving accountants, appraisers, experts, and others, despite the fact that some might be confidential. This scenario often arises when partnerships decline to provide copies of correspondence with advisors on grounds that they are protected by the federally authorized tax practitioner, FATP, privilege established in Code Section 7525. This provision generally states that the protections that apply to communications between taxpayers and their attorneys extend to communications between taxpayers and FATPs. However, Code Section 7525 clarifies that these expanded protections only apply to 1. Tax advice, not return preparation and other services. 2. Provided by a person who qualifies as an FATP, such as a certified public accountant, enrolled agent, registered tax return preparer, and others. 3. Involving non-criminal matters. 4. In connection with an administrative or judicial tax matter, where the IRS or DOJ is a party and five, not regarding tax shelters. The IRS has started trying to overcome the FATP privilege in SEET and SST cases by arguing, among other things, that one, the relevant advisors were not providing tax advice in the first place, two, even if they were offering tax advice, the privilege was later waived when the relevant information was forwarded to third parties, 3. SCETs and SSTs are listed transactions and thus tax shelters pursuant to Notice 2017-10. 4. A significant purpose of the SCETs and SSTs is a federal income tax avoidance. And 5. The advisors were involved in the promotion of the SCETs and SSTs, as this term is broadly defined in applicable case law. 4. Newest Actions by the IRS Understanding the IRS's newest actions in its quest to halt SCETs and SSTs requires some background knowledge. The following segment of this article explains, in abbreviated fashion, how we got to where we are today. A. Evolution of Access to an Administrative Appeal The IRS has declared that taxpayers have a right to seek review by the Appeals Office for many decades. Indeed, regulations issued more than five decades ago in 1967 stated that when the IRS proposes tax adjustments, the taxpayer has the right and will be so advised by the district director of administrative appeal to the appeals organization. Later in 1987, the IRS issued Revenue Procedure 8724, which explains the following about universal review by the appeals office in situations involving cases docketed with the tax court. Except in unusual circumstances, a docketed case is referred by counsel to appeals to reach a settlement with the taxpayer. Appeals has exclusive jurisdiction of a docketed case involving a deficiency of more than $10,000 per period, including taxes and penalties, as long as appeals believes there is a reasonable likelihood of settlement or until the case appears on a trial calendar. Appeals will have sole settlement authority over docketed cases referred to appeals pursuant to these procedures until the case is returned to counsel. Revenue Procedure 8724 contained an important caveat, though. It stated that certain high-ranking IRS attorneys could, after internal consultation, determine that a case or an issue or issues in a case should not be considered by appeals and in such a situation, appeals will forego settlement authority over such case or issues. 
1998, Congress passed the IRS Restructuring and Reform Act. That legislation required the IRS to ensure an independent appeals function. A few years later, in 2004, the IRS issued a Chief Counsel Directive, CCD, which was later incorporated into the IRM. It featured yet more ways for the IRS to deprive taxpayers of a chance to seek reconsideration by the appeals office. The CCD explained that certain cases involve recurring important legal issues that affect large numbers of taxpayers. In such instances, when there is a critical need for enforcement activity, the IRS can designate for litigation the relevant cases in the interest of sound tax administration and for purposes of establishing legal precedent, conserving resources, and reducing costs. The CCD indicated that this maneuver might be appropriate, for example, with tax shelters. If taxpayers have an issue that the IRS designates for litigation, they will not get an examination report, will not get a chance to file a protest letter contesting the examination report, will not have a chance to present their side of the story to the appeals office before the IRS issues a notice of deficiency, and will not have their cases rooted back to the appeals office after the IRS issues a notice of deficiency and they file a petition with the tax court disputing it. In 2015, Congress enacted Code Section 7803A, which mandates that the IRS commissioner carry out his or her duties in accord with taxpayer rights. Specifically, this provision explains that the IRS commissioner must ensure that all IRS employees understand and act consistently with taxpayer rights granted throughout the Internal Revenue Code, including but not limited to the right to appeal a decision of the IRS in an independent forum. The following year, 2016, the IRS issued Revenue Procedure 2016-22. It confirmed that the IRS attorneys generally will refer docketed cases to the appeals office for settlement consideration, and the appeals office has sole authority to resolve the cases until it returns them to the IRS attorneys to prepare for litigation. However, Revenue Procedure 2016-22, like earlier administrative guidance, contained disclaimers allowing the IRS to circumvent the appeals office in certain scenarios. It stated the following in this regard. Council will not refer to appeals any docketed case or issue that has been designated for litigation by Council. In limited circumstances, a docketed case or issue that has not been designated for litigation will not be referred to appeals if Division Council or a higher-level Council official determines that referral is not in the interest of sound tax administration. For example, Council might decide not to refer a docketed case to appeals in cases involving a significant issue common to other cases in litigation for which it is important that the IRS maintain a consistent position. If Council determines that a docketed case or issue will not be referred to appeals, Council will notify the taxpayer that the case will not be referred to appeals. Congress then enacted Code Section 7803E as part of the Taxpayer First Act of 2019, TFA. This provision accomplished several things of note. First, it created the so-called Independent Office of Appeals. Second, it explained that the purpose of the Independent Office of Appeals is to resolve federal tax disputes without litigation on a basis that is fair and impartial to the IRS and taxpayers, promotes consistent application of federal tax laws, and increases public confidence in the integrity and efficiency of the IRS. Third, it generally provided that the resolution process described in the preceding sentence should be available to all taxpayers. 
Finally, it created limits on the IRS in designating cases for litigation. The provision states in particular that in situations where taxpayers receive a notice of deficiency, request that their cases be rooted to the Independent Office of Appeals, and have their requests rejected, the IRS must supply the taxpayer with written notice of the IRS's basis for the rejection and the procedures for disputing such rejection. Most recently, the IRS issued in August 2020 a memorandum with guidance about designation of cases or issues for litigation as requested by the TFA. The language of the memorandum is technical and dense, of course. The most important aspect for purposes of this article is the description of the circumstances in which the IRS believes it is appropriate to deprive taxpayers of their general right to seek review by the Independent Office of Appeals. The memorandum suggests that some tax issues are susceptible to recurring compliance challenges, IRS rulings or other administrative guidance do not effectively address such matters, and audit personnel may request designation where sound tax administration is best served by forcing the tax court or another appropriate court to act as the heavy. Importantly, the memorandum goes on to provide various examples where sound tax administration is best served by establishing judicial precedent, including situations where revoking access of taxpayers to the Independent Office of Appeals supposedly would, one, stem the proliferation of abusive tax shelters or other significant noncompliance, two, reduce future compliance and dispute costs for the IRS and other taxpayers, three, Resolve issues where published IRS guidance has not resulted in what the IRS considers compliance, and or, four, obtain clarity where there is a wide divergence between the IRS and taxpayer viewpoints on the law. B. Recent actions by the IRS. The National Taxpayer Advocate, NTA, issued reports for several years claiming that the IRS was abusing its power by depriving taxpayers of their right to seek reconsideration by the Appeals Office, now rebranded as the Independent Office of Appeals, based on questionable proclamations of sound tax administration. The NTA offered the following illustration of how things work. Taxpayer, a diversified business, enters into a transaction that the IRS believes to be suspiciously similar to a type of transaction that it has previously identified as a tax shelter. As a result, the IRS asserts large deficiencies and penalties against taxpayer. Thereafter, taxpayer files a protest letter with appeals, arguing that the transaction in question is fundamentally different from the tax shelter transaction with which the IRS is attempting to equate it. Further, taxpayer contends that in addition to being distinguishable from a tax shelter, the transaction in question has legitimate business purpose and should not generate either tax deficiencies or penalties. The Office of Chief Counsel, however, unilaterally decides that taxpayers should not have the opportunity to raise these arguments at appeals. Instead, counsel determines that the case should proceed directly to litigation on the basis of sound tax administration. As a result, taxpayer is unable to present its arguments to an independent third party within the IRS and is prevented from seeking the administrative case resolution it believes could be achieved. Instead, taxpayer is forced to pursue its case in court as a matter of public record, incurring substantial cost, delay, and ill will for the IRS along the way. Most people do not realize it, but the IRS has already started taking similar actions in certain cases involving SCETs and SSTs. 
A common technique is for a revenue agent to summarily inform a partnership at the end of a long audit in which the partnership fully cooperated that the IRS will not issue a summary report, not hold a closing conference, not provide a notice of proposed adjustments, and thus not allow the partnership to obtain review by the Independent Office of Appeals before initiating tax litigation. This occurs even though the partnership has granted or has offered to grant a lengthy extension of the assessment period by signing a Form 872-P, consent to extend the time to assess tax attributable to partnership items. The revenue agent invariably cites sound tax administration in taking these actions without providing any details. In short, unbeknownst to most, the IRS has started depriving some partnerships of pre-litigation access to the Independent Office of Appeals without formally designating SCETs and SSTs for litigation. A related question is whether the IRS will up the ante in the future, officially designating SCETs and SSTs for litigation. As explained above, the IRS issued a memorandum in August 2020 taking the position that sound tax administration is best served by designating cases where doing so would stop abusive tax shelters or other significant noncompliance, decrease enforcement costs, resolve issues where IRS guidance has not rendered the desired results, and provide clarity on highly disputed tax or legal matters. The IRS has tried to demonize SCETs and SSTs as abusive tax shelters. The IRS has allocated enormous resources to challenging these transactions. The issuance of Notice 2017-10 did not diminish participation, and partnerships in the IRS have vastly different views on what really matters, with the former focused on easement valuation and the latter fixated on technical issues wholly unrelated to value. Fortunately, the IRS has not taken the drastic step of designating SCETs and SSTs for litigation. It recently submitted its first annual report to Congress, as required by the TFA, reporting that no issues have been designated for litigation. 5. Conclusion The IRS is poised to continue challenging SCETs and SSTs, and it has demonstrated a willingness to implement additional, increasingly extreme enforcement techniques as part of the process. As this article explains, the newest tactic is depriving or threatening to deprive partnerships of their general right in existence for decades to seek recognition by a neutral party, the Independent Office of Appeals, before engaging in long, expensive, complicated tax litigation. To maximize their chances of prevailing against the IRS, partnerships must remain hyper-aware of the evolving enforcement tools. They need to retain tax professionals who are at the forefront, too. Thank you for listening to this article, Depriving Partnerships of Access to the Independent Office of Appeals, Old and New IRS Challenges to Conservation Easements, by Hale E. Shepard. Published in Taxes, the Tax Magazine, July 2021. Read for you by Kristen Dummer. I hope you enjoyed the article. Feedback from listeners helps to improve my writing, so I welcome your comments and questions. You can contact me by email at hale.shepherd at chamberlainlaw.com. That's H-A-L-E dot S-H-E-P-P-A-R-D at chamberlainlaw.com or through my website at www.prosebytaxpros.com. That's P-R-O-S-E-B-Y-T-A-X-P-R-O-S dot com.